1: And thanks for joining us here on Punching Out. I'm Nadia, and today I'm here with Karen. Hello. And Abby. Hi. Making this the first ever episode of our show hosted entirely by women. Woohoo! Congratulations, yeah. ladies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about healthcare today, and since we have a lot to say about it, this is going to be a two parter. So, today in part one, we'll be giving you a little bit of history on how health insurance came to be tied to employment. And then we'll be talking about employer sponsored healthcare as it currently exists. I know a lot of folks are going through the open enrollment process right now, which is kind of a nightmare.
2: Open enrollment or open season. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good nice. question. <laughs> I actually this is Karen. Um I I actually have like um an unnaturally large response to open enrollment season. So open enrollment for um, employer-sponsored health care for people who may not know is when you're working in a job that provides you with health insurance and you have to choose your plan for the coming year. And uh, a lot of times you might have two, three, or four options to choose from. I don't know, maybe some people get six options. I don't really know. Um, four is typical where I work. And I think that it encapsulates for me uh, a real neoliberal moment where all of the messaging we get from from our employer is, be an educated consumer. Look at your options. We can help you choose the best plan. And really, it puts all of the onus on the individual person, um, almost to be like an economist for their household, uh, it's a very confusing picture. I know that there are a lot, of, I talk about health insurance to people a lot, and I know there are a lot of people out there who don't understand what a premium is versus a duct- deductible versus a copay. What's a PPO? What's a, an accountable health network? Like, what are all these terms? So, it's really a high level of knowledge that you need even to be an informed consumer. And the mm-hmm. truth is, at the end of the day, there are no good choices. And uh, my employer has an animated cartoon that walks you through like, okay, let's anticipate your health care for the coming year, your needs for you and your family. And I don't know if I'm going to get cancer. Yeah, and you know mean. what? They don't know if I'm going to get cancer. Exactly. There's no way to anticipate your health care needs for the coming year. And uh, the more people in your family, the more complicated that picture gets. And they tell you that like, you can find the best plan for your money. And um, it's actually not true. So I resent that people have like this personal, that to me encapsulates neoliberalism, a personal responsibility to figure out a really complicated, complex picture and anticipate the unanticipatable (laughs) (laughs) for your family in the coming year. Sure. I mean, I I work in healthcare and I
1: only understood half of the terms that you just said. And that's (laughs) my field. So I mean, it's, it's certainly way more complicated than it. Needs to be.
2: Yeah, and sometimes yeah. you don't fully appreciate how complicated it is until you're on the wrong, expensive, right. uh, perilous for your health side of it. I'm in an uh, unmarried domestic
1: partnership, and every year during open enrollment season, my partner and I have to weigh the pros and cons of each other's health insurance and whether or not I'm going to switch to his insurance or stay on my own because mm-hmm. him switching to my insurance isn't even an option because we're not married, which is not part of the anecdote but also another aggravation right yeah. mm-hmm. um so open enrollment just ended last week for us and i already feel like we made the wrong decision mm. yeah, and and i would say just because of the field that i work in that i'm you know maybe a little more well versed in this stuff than the average
3: human being and i still i still blew it I'm definitely one of those people also who doesn't really understand much of it. And it stresses me out so much every
2: time this. There is so much time in aggravation. Yeah. I'm always on the phone with the insurance company just trying to anticipate what's going to happen when I walk into a visit. What if I need this? Is it covered? I have another thing on my list that I'm supposed to call about. And I'm tired. Yeah. I'm tired of calling and trying to figure it out ahead of time for multiple family members. And now I'm of an age where I'm starting to manage sort of the health care of my folks, And so I'm learning their insurance and I'm calling their doctors and they're, it's, it's a
1: lot. It's It's exhausting. it's It's exhausting. And it takes, it takes a lot. It takes a lot out of you. I mean, that's, that's part of the reason why I say, I feel like we made the wrong decision this time around because we, we chose the cheaper option. Whereas we, we should have, or we, yes, we chose the cheaper option. Whereas I feel like it would have been better to sacrifice the money over the the time and stress and there is but no question, good there right? is no good in
2: right cuz it's that right. choice
3: that you're forced to make which, which is, is it? right you're not making that i mean to all of us we have limited incomes to a certain degree mm. you don't want to pay more money than you need to right? right but at the same time like you want to have health coverage right. that's and you want to be able to do things that make your life more comfortable right Um, the shame associated with not knowing or what happens if something happens to you and you've made the so-called wrong choice. Um, Like it's connected to this feeling of it's your fault. It's all on you. And so you should be uh, ashamed if you've made somehow.
2: There's actually a Washington Post article um, that was published in 2012. It is a Harvard-trained health economist who guessed wrong for herself and her family. How so did she, she guess wrong? She had a serious medical condition, and she had, had chosen a plan in which every provider who could help her with her brain surgery was out of network. <laughs> and she talked, it's interesting, she yeah. didn't name shame exactly, mm-hmm. but she did talk about being embarrassed yeah. um, because one of the people was like, why did you choose, like one of the one of her doctors was like, "Why did you choose the HMO?" And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Like she was embarrassed professionally well, that okay. she didn't. so this is this is like highly complicated, and i I will probably always like my my term is that we're all wearing an exoskeleton of capitalism <laughs> everywhere we go, because we're involved in these complex systems, and when something goes wrong, it's on us as an individual to fix it, to bear the price, to pay for it, mm-hmm. to suffer from it. It's mm-hmm. almost like there aren't any systems or bureaucracies out there that actually intend to help anybody anymore. Right. Like imagine just like getting actual service and help with something that's gone wrong. That's why That's yeah. why I wanted to do a show about... Specifically, we, this is a show about work, mm-hmm. and I know that it's open enrollment season, um, and we're going to have a much larger discussion about health care. But our entry point for the Punching Out Radio show and a show about work is employer-sponsored health care. Right.
3: And so, Karen, you have a especial amount of knowledge about this stuff because you've been doing work related to these issues for a while. Um, and you know about a lot about the history of the connection yep. between health, insurance and or employer uh, employer sponsored mm-hmm. health insurance. Can you talk a little so
2: bit about So, we're in that? Rochester, New York, mm-hmm. and I took a class at the University of Rochester with Professor Ted Brown, who's a an historian and also in the Public Health Sciences Department at the University of Rochester Medical Center. And I learned a lot from that <laughs> class. Holy cow. It's a history of healthcare reform in the United States. Um, and so I wanted to go back to the moment that, uh, health insurance came to be associated with employment because it really causes a lot of problems. And it's also often thought to be the best case scenario Mm -hmm. is that you have a job and you have great insurance through your employer. So So, we often
1: talk about that as one of the perks of, you know, when I, I was actually just talking to someone today about a job opportunity at my company, and that was one of the things that I said, you know, our health insurance is fairly decent. Yeah. So it's a perk, right, to have health insurance from your
2: employer. Yep. And so the so the reason um, health insurance got tied to employment, um, we have to go back to World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, In the late, let's go a little further back. In the late (laughs) 1930s, um, people were just paying for healthcare out of pocket. In the 1930s. and but there wasn't a lot of health care to buy, okay? So there weren't all the sparkling scientific discoveries. There weren't the complex systems of care. Mm-hmm. Um, so there wasn't a lot of health insu- uh, a lot of health care to buy. Um, but a group of hospitals in Texas came together and said, we're gonna like, offer kind of an insurance for hospitalization if if people can pay into the system monthly or whatever and if they get hospitalized will co- it covers their care and a little bit at that was like 1939 and a little bit after that some doctors doctors kind of started to resent hospitals it's a long story mm-hmm. i'm not going to get into it um <laughs> it's a very different picture today but doctors were like you know what for regular care not in the hospital We can also offer a subscription plan where people pay in, and then if something comes up, then they come and visit us, and it's covered. So that's Blue Cross Blue Shield, Hmm, um, two separate sort of systems that came together much later on. But anyway, so World War II, a lot of people fighting overseas, a lot of uh, factories needing workers, shortage of workers, wages were going to go up. Mm -hmm. And uh, Roosevelt and the government were very concerned um, because they did not want factories competing for workers by raising wages and pushing the country coming out of depression into inflation. Uh, so they actually banned wage increases, federally. Mm-hmm. and But they didn't ban employers trying to lure workers by offering health care benefits. So a lot of the employers said, we'll pay for this new health insurance thing, mm-hmm. um, come over to work for our factory. And um, one of the key things that happened is that the IRS decided that that should not be taxed. Oh, okay. So uh, when you have, still to this day, when you have health insurance, um, the employer pay like whatever they're paying for your health insurance, um, they don't consider that part of your salary. You're not taxed the way you are taxed on your salary. Right. Yeah. So, um, so that was this. Those were the seeds. That was the beginning.
3: I honestly. W- I mean, I guess if I had thought about it a lot, I would have guessed that it hadn't always been tied to, the health insurance hadn't been always employer-sponsored for some reason. I can't say that term correctly. Um, But it is really interesting to think that it wasn't always that way Mm -hmm. um, and that it's something that developed throughout history, or the very recent history, actually.
2: It was actually, so 1944, I think, was when that happened. Yeah. In 1945, Truman started arguing for a national health system. Um, So it really wasn't meant to stay tied to employment. And other countries in Europe recovering from the war did not tie it Mm -hmm. to employment. So so it seems like a little bit of a privileged position to come in and say, I want to talk about how bad employer-sponsored health insurance (laughs) is, right? (laughs) Because... People don't have health insurance, right? Um, but I think it's really important to look at this system because it informs the debates about covering others. There's sort of this underlying moral position that, well, if you had a job, you'd have health insurance, so you should work, you lazy bum. Exactly. Um,
1: <laughs> or even worse than that, not even tying it to jobs, but just, you know, why, why should I pay for
2: someone else? Right, I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) Thanks, Nadia. Um, So this is another reason why I like to... So there's like three really good reasons. That's one reason. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the points I wanted to make today when you said, why should I have to pay for somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the discourse in the last two years has been grumblings in the populace saying... Why should I have to pay for the health insurance of somebody who doesn't work? Right. Um, and here's the stunner mm-hmm. and what I want. Everybody, if you don't remember anything from this discussion, I want mm-hmm. you to remember this. We all pay to subsidize employer-sponsored insurance. So we know that we're paying with our, with our money, we're paying into Medicaid mm-hmm. and Medicare and um, Actually, employer sponsor the, the tax benefits to both the employer and the employee that we pay for. First, I'll say after Medicare and Medicaid, that's the largest health care expense that the U.S. government has, are these tax breaks that they offer to employers and to us. Um, but the other thing to know about it is that it is also the highest the single largest tax expenditure for the U.S. government. Okay. So what does that mean? A ta- it's it's a bigger break on your taxes cumulatively than the mortgage interest rate um, deduction that people take on their taxes. $260 billion a year in lost income and payroll taxes to subsidize employer-sponsored health insurance. Wow. So my big message here is we're already all in it together, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um we're all paying all in. We're getting less and less out. And really what we're subsidizing is profit. Yeah. So this need for shareholders to see increase 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 of profits every year is forcing up our healthcare costs. It's gargantuan. It's yeah. car- the portion Three times of as fast. our wages that are that we're paying, even those of us with employer-sponsored yeah. care, like the numbers of people who feel like they're worried about being able to afford their health care right. is going up. And um, even for people with this sort of best-case scenario. Right. So some yeah. of those other neoliberal messages that I don't like that happen around here are now because of... Um, The neoliberal messaging really goes back to the first George Bush, Mm -hmm. the first George Bush. Um, He actually, his plan for improving the health of the nation when he became president and gave an address was that it's everybody's personal responsibility to eat better and exercise more. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So we've spent, what, the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years being told that the real problem with right. healthcare in this country, is that we don't take enough personal exactly. responsibility as if exercise and nutrition is available to everyone, but also as if that's the root cause of all of our healthcare ills.
1: Right, right. You don't take right. good enough care of yourself. So yeah. now you have lung cancer. So yeah, now you're we are creating those risks for yourself. Right. So, yeah, well, right. for
2: you and me, because an employer sponsored right. right. insurance, our premiums go up because you're a fat slop. Yeah. Right. Like that's how it. Neoliberalism makes people mean. Mm-hmm. We're mean to each other. And it's not even yeah. like uh, there's no basis of fact for how the healthcare system works based on personal nutrition and exercise. I'm not saying they're bad things to yeah. do and that they don't help your health, but holy cow, what slice of your whole healthcare picture is that? You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. If you enjoy our show, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PunchingOutWayo. If you'd like to share your stories, you can email
1: us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Back to the show.
3: All right, welcome back. So, we're talking today about uh, the healthcare system and its connection to work and employer sponsored healthcare. And so one thing that I think about a lot in general about work is the way that um, we tie it to our sort of ability to live. Um, If you don't work, then you lose the chance to have health care. You lose the chance to be sort of a respected member of society or, you know, these sorts of things. And so um, especially this issue about um, health insurance being connected to jobs is that you don't have really the freedom to not have a job, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. um, it's a sort of version of coercion, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, like, if you are in a situation where you feel like you need to leave for whatever reason, that's a really big reason that people might not leave is that they might not be able to find the same kind of health care. Right.
2: I think it's also, it puts people in that kind of bind. It also means that a lot of times you may be taking a lower salary mm-hmm. just to have the health insurance. And sometimes for your family, right? Right. You need, not just for yourself, but you may have children and you need the health insurance for them. Right. Um, and so all of the sorts of workplace abuses that th- people have talked, like the Punching Out Collective talks about on this show, yeah. Um Uh, they're heightened and they have more power if somebody's tied to their job in order to keep their health insurance. And I know somebody just recently told me that um, she she was going to be taking a new job at a different place. Mm -hmm. And um, the COBRA, that's that's what you pay. Don't ask me why it's called COBRA. That's (laughs) what you pay um, to keep your current health insurance until you get to the new job. Oh, okay. $800 a month.
3: Oh my gosh.
2: Um, for her and her family. Wow. So that I've also been on Cobra and it wasn't that much less and that was years ago. Yeah. So it's really it's really what are you gonna do?
1: Right. It's, I mean, that's basically an impossible amount of money, mm-hmm. especially for someone that's not leaving one job and jumping right into the next mm-hmm. one.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. I remember one of the very first sort of practice cases we used when starting the Punching Out Collective was actually that same story, Mm. or a similar story, about someone who was dealing with these workplace abuses and yet had um, health issues that meant that they really needed, they desperately needed their insurance. Mm -hmm. And that was, it was really the insurance was the reason that they couldn't get out of this Mm -hmm. really abusive kind of situation.
2: So the work itself was abusive, yeah, I th- and, as but far they I had stated yeah. to keep the health insurance to get the mental health care yeah. to help with the abuse. Which reminds me of, it just reminds me yeah. topically of um, an article, another another article about you know the whole Hollywood sexual yeah, harassment. Right? I've read a really powerful piece, and I wish I could remember the author's name right now, but I don't. Um, where. Basically, she said, you know, the the sort of, like professional. This happened to be in academia. Mm-hmm. The professional abuse that she took in um, her settings in multiple universities was a tax yeah. on her and on women workers. That right. when like she spent this much in mental health um, uh, therapy services because she was being harassed professionally at work, right. um, and it's a tax that women pay which might be a good segue into one of the things we said we'd talk about today, which is how do women fare under this best-case scenario, employer-sponsored health insurance?
1: Not well. That's my guess. They don't fare well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Uh, I know you were saying earlier, Karen, that you did some reading about current legislation and found out some things about the ACA that maybe we don't know?
2: Yeah, I think on, on, so, okay, yes, yes, I did. And it (laughs) it makes me so angry that I'm laughing right right now, right? I'm smiling at you guys because it makes me so angry. story of our lives, right? So one of the things that, so this is not specifically employer-sponsored, being ACA insurance, Mm -hmm. but one of the things that's long been true is that, Um, The Hyde Amendment, uh, passed by the U.S. Congress for many, many years, has banned any federal money paying for abortions. Mm -hmm. So in my world, abortions are part of health care. And so uh, Medicaid recipients can't have an abortion paid by Medicaid. Um, There are a little bit of exceptions to it, but I'm going to try to keep this basic. Um, So unless the woman was raped or her health is at risk and even that there was an even stricter ban in the U.S. military for women in the U.S. military, right? And um, the,
1: the the rape and incest stipulations yeah. were added much later, yes. right? Like for the, high the for men the men women in the yeah. Originally was yeah. It passed in the seventies, I think, and then those stipulations yeah. didn't come into play
2: until the nineties. Maybe is that does that? Sound I don't accurate? know exactly, okay. but I know that for the military, they they didn't even give you like the rape and incest stipulation until very recently. And you still have to go to a VA hospital to get your care. And you can imagine how well-suited they are to handling women vets. We already know that they're not very. So, okay. So the ACA um, maintained that. Mm -hmm. So this gets passed every year, by the way. It's not a law that's in effect until you take it out of effect. They actually keep passing it year after year after year. (sighs) So um, one of my disappointments with the ACA, aside from the fact that it doesn't cure all of the health care reform problems that can be cured, um, mm-hmm. is that it, it actually codifies and strengthens that relationship that, that no federal, no, okay, don't worry, no federal money is going to pay for abortions. Mm-hmm. There are some stipulations in that states, states can use state money even as part of the Medicaid program to pay for abortions, but states have to decide to do that, and not every state does that. So um, that's abortion coverage. But the more recent sort of topic in the news has been the status of birth control Mm -hmm. um, under employer-sponsored health
0: care.
1: So the newest deal with birth control coverage, new rules have been issued by the Department of Health that basically say employers and universities can just decide that you can't have birth control because they morally object Mm -hmm. to it on. I mean, I think they can cite religious reasons, but also just just they can just morally object based on Mm -hmm. nothing, really.
3: Uh, And there were some places that actually did that. I mean, right. they like, it's talked about birth control and it's talked about as this, like, specifically sort of sex related, th- like, personal control sort of thing. Mm. But it's like a medical condition, the condition of being able to get pregnant or not. I mean, like, mm-hmm. that's kind of a h- harsh way of saying it. But, like, if Vi- something like Viagra is theoretically being covered... um something like birth control should be covered Mm -hmm. I mean and you shouldn't have to have an an answer like you shouldn't have have to have a justification which is like not even sex-based like Mm -hmm. like no no it's because of other medical reasons no this is it like this is something that's not just right yeah it it shouldn't be a question
1: for my employer to say why do you need this specific kind of medication exactly because the only answer to that question is because my doctor said so yeah, that's mm-hmm. the only answer. Mm-hmm. And it should be the acceptable answer. When we talk about birth control coverage or when I talk about it, that's one of the points that I make when people say, you know, why should I pay for you to keep yourself from becoming pregnant? And I say, <laughs> I've been taking birth control since I was 12 years old because I had really painful periods. Right. Boom, deal with it. But it's also like you shouldn't have to say it. I shouldn't have to say right, anything exactly. and it's not it's why is it up to anybody else what I need medicine for? Or why I want to use it, right? right? I mean, it's just an absurd concept to me. I get so angry just thinking about it because it just does not compute.
3: The idea that this is something that employers can stipulate or com- employers have control over about their workers, yeah, who are women, is that this that they enter into their lives in this way, yeah.
2: Yeah. So, and I have I have a feeling that some of them are like rubbing their hands together and cackling over it. I'm just (laughs) okay. So the other thing I wanted to mention. So we talked a little bit about abortion. We talked a Mm -hmm. little bit about um, birth control and employers meddling in that in really gross ways. Um, The third aspect that is helpful to think about. So. Mm, if employer-sponsored care is out of reach, right? Mm -hmm. Like employer-sponsored care has gotten so expensive that that's not even a good solution anymore. The people in society who are the primary caretakers of sick family members are women. So we are more likely to miss work caring for a loved one. And when they don't have health insurance or access to health care, we're picking up the slack, so right. we're we're the ones carrying capitalism again. Um, so that was I just wanted to make the yeah. point that this is actually this is also of primary interest to women because we like when we can't get long-term care for our elderly parents, they're living in our houses right. and we're changing their diapers, and we're trying to make sure that they have what they need. Um, and children actually carry the burden of parents not being able to get health care. So mm-hmm. in disadvantaged communities a lot of times you've got high school students who are missing school because mom or grandmother has diabetes and she needs somebody there with her. Right. Uh, so the so we're really vulnerable in particular to the fact that we have a patchwork healthcare system. I think in our in part two, we're going to talk about some possible solutions. Actually, we're going to talk about one possible solution mm-hmm. to all of this, which is single-payer health care or universal health care. Right. Um, and so a lot of activist organizations, a lot of social, specifically socialist feminist organizations like the um, Socialist Feminist Caucus of the New York City chapter of Democratic Socialists of America have decided that their primary issue, not that... Other issues aren't important and that they're not working on and showing up for. But their primary issue that they're going to work on is single payer health care reform, universal health care. We're going to be on next. This is our first back to back two parter for the Punching Out radio show. Mm -hmm. And we're going to come back next week and we're going to talk about uh, universal health care and what what. What's actually po- possible for curing these problems and why it could be a great thing? So that's hopeful, right? Yeah, definitely. That's definitely hopeful. Thanks, Nadia. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, thanks, Karen. Thanks, Karen
0: You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Leo.